Well, good evening and welcome back to Wednesday Night Bible Study. We are now up to Revelation chapter 11, and this is the chapter that deals with the two witnesses. Uh, we'll say an opening prayer. We'll get into chapter 11 and uh, just a little bit of a, a treat uh, before we get into chapter 11, which I'll explain after the opening prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pause and we just want to praise you, Lord, and just thank you for your loving kindness toward us. Thank you, God, for your word. Your word is truth. We thank you, God, that in this age of deception, increasing deception, that we have access to truth and we have access to this wonderful book of Revelation. You pronounce a blessing on those who will read it and those who will hear it and do what is contained therein. Father, we ask for this blessing. We praise you. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask these blessings in his name. Amen. So uh, we're up to chapter 11, as I said, we're going to be dealing with the chapter on the two witnesses, which is, you know, everybody wants to know who are the two witnesses. Uh, so we'll deal with that. But just before we do that, we do have a treat. I'm just going to put my earphones on here. And that is that Pastor Murray will be joining us this evening. There was a question, not last week, but the week before. We did have some technology problems. But there was a question that came up when we were in chapter 9 and uh, that was in the chat session and pastor murray took that away he wants to address it this evening pastor murray are you there i am here how are you great excellent thanks for joining us uh, what i'll do now is i'll just turn over the bible study to you and uh, the scriptures that you asked for will be up beside you let me just confirm this yes yeah, so we're going to begin with revelation chapter 9 and verses 14 and 15 and I'm just going to drop out of the frame, and I will join you in a moment. All Perfect. yours. Uh, thank you, Adrian. It's a pleasure to uh, join you tonight. The uh, question that came up was from one of our sisters, uh, Lena, who asked uh, whether the four angels referred to in Revelation 9, verses 14 to 15, uh, the ones that were uh, bound and loosed from the river Euphrates, are the same ones that Peter wrote about in 1 Peter 3. Uh, so let's begin first by going back to Revelation 9 and just uh, finding those scriptures. Cutting into the context in verse 14, uh, we, uh, regarding the sixth trumpet, we see saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now her question uh, references First uh, Peter 3 and whether those four angels are the same angels referred to here in First Peter 3. I'm reading from the New King James and we'll get to that in a second. For Christ, verse 18 of First Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits at prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now, what's interesting here is that Peter makes reference uh, to this incident where Christ addressed the imprisoned demons while the flood was being prepared. Uh, but he makes no further commentary on this, so it's hard to, to uh, address the why he made a commentary on this, other than the fact that Christ did address these imprisoned demons during the period of time that Noah was building the ark. Uh, now whether these, uh, this group of angels that he addressed 
belong to the same group of four that were released from Euphrates. When we consider this in context, we do know from uh, various scriptures and other places in scripture, and I don't believe this is uh, uh, in doubt at all, that Satan and his demons have been cast down to earth, and in being cast down to earth, they are limited to where they can go according to God's will. We see even reference at the beginning of Job to that, where Satan can only act and do according to God's will. So from that perspective, uh, they are imprisoned. Now, whether it is here on this earth in some capacity or whether they're imprisoned in some uh, specific spiritual place, uh, like a, like a, a prison-type setting, that's a little unclear. But w it is clear that they are, they are imprisoned and cast down to earth and can act only according to God's will. Either way, they have been localized to earth, and we know that Satan is the god of this world. And again, they can only act where God allows them to. What's interesting is that the number of angels mentioned in 1 Peter is unnumbered, but Revelation speaks of four specific ones. What is likely the case is that these four are a subset of the larger group mentioned in 1 Peter, who are allowed to lead four nations, likely Islamic nations, and you covered that well back in chapter uh, 9 because of the countries that surround, that, that are bordering on the Euphrates that allowed to lead these countries in a similar way to uh, the godly angels, the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, they would be loosed and permitted to lead these nations to attack Israel. It would seem completely in context to me uh, that these demons uh, would be restricted to one imprisoned place. So they're likely a subset, in my opinion, of those uh, larger group of, of demons that Christ addressed back in uh, Noah's time. Uh, that addresses... Uh, Lena's question, just uh, before we uh, turn it back over to you, there's just a couple other interesting points I'd like to point out uh, that are worthy of mention. Uh, we read verse 19 in 1 Peter 3, and I read it from the, King, the New King James Version. And again, here's where it's, uh, here's where it's important when we uh, choose translations that we understand context and uh, inter interpret through, let the Bible interpret uh, the Bible through through other through other scriptures, we come to the end of verse 18 that says by the Spirit, and then the New King James you'll notice says by whom, whereas the King James says by which. Uh, we know that the Spirit is not a, a person; it is the power of God. And there's a good example of where, when we are reading one uh, version, we need to be very particular and very attuned to what it is saying, and notice these errors in translation that we see there. The one other item, uh, and again, then I'll turn it back over to you, is, happens to be in verse 20. And when we read that in the uh, New King James Version, it causes, again, the translation here causes a little bit of ambiguity. And we discovered that when you and I were refer, refer, reviewing these three verses uh, a couple of weeks ago after Lena's question, where it does say, these spirits in prison, ending verse 19, continuing to verse 20, who formerly were disobedient, and the way that the English words that uh, that translation there in the New King James, it, it it could confuse a reader by saying now these these sinful angels are no longer disobedient. Um, that does not that is not the case, and that certainly doesn't uh, uh, square up with the, the biblical context and the biblical narrative. Uh, but when we read that particular uh, verse in in the New King James, what we see is that this this uh, the verb were disobedient in the Greek is in the aorist 
tense, which really does not have an English equivalent, but is typically translated into the past tense. And according to Strong's and commentaries, translating using that, tra using that tense, the aorist tense, suffices in most cases, translating into the past tense. But here, it causes some ambiguity and make, makes it look like the sinful angels, while they formerly were disobedient, are no longer disobedient. And the, the quick explanation on that is that it actually refers to this aorist tense, actually refers to a specific time in the past where an incident occurred. Um, so we can take this to mean, and this aligns perfectly with biblical context, that at some specific point in time in the past, these angels became disobedient. And we can infer from that, that uh, and through other scriptures, that they continue to do, be disobedient. They're, they are not in a state of, of being obedient now. Um, so just a, a couple of, of uh, points to point out there in the different translations that can cause some ambiguity and not align us with, with scriptural context that is important to, to uh, watch when we're studying those, those particular translations. That's great, uh, Pastor Murray. I really appreciate you uh, taking that question and doing the, the legwork on that. And uh, also appreciate Sister Lena uh, raising the question. Now, I just want to confirm that you'll be around after the study when we go into the chat in case there are some further questions. Absolutely will. And I do have the, the gist of this uh, printed up, and I will uh, link it into the chat. through. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll add it to the chat after the study. That's wonderful. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a link. So uh, thank you for letting me join you, and uh, God bless the study. My pleasure, and thanks so much for doing this. All right, God All right, bless. Thank you. So uh, thank you to uh, Pastor Murray for doing that for us and uh, providing the clarification, doing the legwork there. And uh, what we want to do now is continue on in Revelation chapter 11. I just want to pick up, so we were in chapter 9 there, and then uh, chapter 10 was the, the little book, the reference to the little book, so I just want to go back to that. Uh, verse 8, the voice which I heard from heaven spoke unto me again and said, go and take the little book. And so we did uh, look at that uh, last time with the little book. He said, go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel. So it's really a scroll, uh, not, a, not a codex, not a book like we have today, but a scroll which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. So this angel is clearly showing his dominance and his authority over the sea and the earth. And sea is often a symbol for peoples. So maybe two different types of peoples here. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, give me the little book or the scroll. And he said unto me, take it and eat it up and it shall make your belly bitter but it shall be in your mouth sweet as honey. So the word of God is sweet. And we did last week look at the references both in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, how these prophets rejoiced to have the word of God and it was sweet as honey in their mouth. But once they realized the full implications of the word, as they digested it, then it was bitter in the belly. And so John is having this same experience where the word of God is sweet to him, but there are implications to it which when he fully digests the meaning, it is bitter. So he says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth, sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. So he came to understand the full implication. Now, verse 11 may have something to do with this bitterness. 
And he said unto me, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So there is this sense here that you know the, 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 the word of God is going to be accomplished, the kingdom of God is going to be established, but there's something that has to happen first, and that thing is going to result in a bitterness. It might be uh, we're going to be looking at the, the two witnesses and the persecution of these witnesses, but also this is definitive that there are people who are going to reject God, they're going to be enemies of God, and their fate is going to be sealed. So there is a, there is a bitterness here when we understand this, and, and it may be as well that some of these people are in fact God's chosen people who have rejected him. Now with that context, we roll into chapter 11. So now we're coming into uh, chapter 11. And it says here, And there was given unto me a reed like unto a rod. So this is a measuring instrument. That It's a rod that is a specific length, and it's used to measure. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple leave out. And measure it not for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months so there's a lot of controversy here about this temple and, and is it a physical temple or is it a spiritual temple and remember we started this by saying most of this book is symbolic personally I lean towards this being a spiritual temple and, and indicating the people of God who are included as true worshipers of God and they are truly in the temple and those that are hypocritical, those that are not really taking this seriously and are in the church organizations but are not really in the church organism and so they will be left out. On the other hand, many say that it is a clearly a physical uh, reference because it's going to be that this holy city is going to be tread underfoot for for three and a half years now that also has some merit and in fact if you were to google a gentleman named dr kaufman uh dr kaufman he's an archaeologist and he has done a lot of work on the uh archaeology around jerusalem and the temple and uh, the mosque the alaxa mosque in jerusalem is built on top of the Temple Mount. And, uh, you know, he's saying that this is a clear indication of Gentiles moving in, taking over the city, and uh, causing the worship to stop. And, and then, you know, he, he believes that there's going to be a third temple that will be built, and that this it's going to create such a controversy, as we're seeing now with uh, just Donald, President Donald Trump recognizing um, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. But but by building this third temple, that is going to create incredible hostility. And uh, whether or not, you know, do the Muslims have the right to this, this area because their prophet uh, went to heaven apparently on a night journey on a, on a white mule. And uh, that's why they have a claim here. Or do the Jews, who through thousands of years of history, do they have a right to this uh, area? And this is going to create great controversy, but they will want to build the temple where it historically was built. So, you know, uh, I don't have a clear answer here whether or not this is a physical temple 
or a spiritual temple and, and the, it's a, a really a symbol of the, the true worshipers. Uh, could go either way. Personally, I lean towards this being a, a symbol of God's people. In any case, there's going to be some sort of measurement of the temple and a, and a decision as to who's in and who's out. And it says here that uh, they'll be they'll they'll be in the those in the outer court are given unto the Gentiles, and I will give power. So at this time, I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three four three score days, clothed in sackcloth. And that's a symbol. <clears throat> excuse me, the sackcloth is a symbol uh, of true prophethood. And then the true prophets, they were not uh, men who were dressed in dainty clothing, who were all about, you know, the comforts of this world. Uh, they were just focused on their mission and dressed in sackcloth, which is often also a symbol of mourning. They prophesy for uh, 1260 days, which is also 42 months. So we see the same uh, reference of time, which we also saw in the prophecies of Daniel, <clears throat> which uh, last week we saw uh, that this, this is clearly a reference to those prophecies. And those prophecies in Daniel, we said uh, clearly those are what are contained in the little book, in the little scroll. That these prophecies associated with this time period are now going to be fulfilled. And we did mention that Pastor Watson is going to be starting a, a series, a Bible study series, once he finishes up on Romans. Uh, on the book of Daniel. So we have to study these two books together, Revelation and Daniel, to fully understand these prophets and their references to the other prophets to fully understand what's going to be happening in the end time. So he's going to give power to his two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and three score days. So <clears throat> again, everybody wants to know who are these two witnesses. <clears throat> And uh, we, we need to sort of, sort of uh, tackle that a bit here. So first of all, anybody who tells you that they are one of the two witnesses, uh, they're gonna disqualify themselves as kooks. Uh, so let's be very careful. It, these could be symbols. So these two witnesses could be symbolic and they could represent two different organizations. They could represent groups of people. They could represent uh, you know, the Messianic Jew, Jews as well as the, uh, the church, the, the Christian church. They could represent uh, a prophecy uh, from representing the Gentiles or uh, Israel. So, so it could be two individuals or it could be a symbol for two different groups of people. Personally, I lean towards this being two specific individuals, two prophets who are going to uh, prophesy. Now, the fact that there are two witnesses, I think, is a callback to Deuteronomy where it says, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sins so having one witness is not enough at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established so clearly in deuteronomy the laying down of the law we cannot condemn somebody if we only have one witness and so part of this uh, in the implication here of having two witnesses prophesying is this is a, a period of condemnation. And those who do not repent, those who do not uh, heed the call of the two witnesses will clearly bring judgment upon themselves without excuse. 
because there will be two witnesses. Also, the two witnesses could be two witnesses to Jesus Christ, to his ministry, to his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and so again, in any case, they are what they say is established because it's not just one witness, it is two. Coming back to Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 4, it says, These are the two olive trees. So what we see now is there's another symbol. Sorry, I mentioned, mentioned, meant to mention here the size of a cubit. It's a hand and an arm. Uh, so when, he, when he's measuring, the, the measuring rod is in cubits. But here he says that these are the two olive trees. And so after the measurement, we have these two witnesses that appear, and they are symbolized by two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth. So these are very powerful men, and they cannot be touched by anybody. Anybody who attempts to try to hurt them is just burned alive. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, who are these two witnesses? I think one of the, one of the indications here, and, and so first of all, they, could, they can be anybody. So let, let's be clear. The two witnesses can be anybody. We don't know. We just don't know who they are. So, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, and we will know when we know. Those who are privileged to be alive at this time, we will know very clearly who they are. Uh, they could be symbols of different groups of people, or they could be two prophets, which is what I lean to. Now, the nature of their work and the nature of their miracles, it could be, I mean, anything is possible, expected to do this work. Just as we saw in the Transfiguration, they were brought to life or resurrected uh, and, and glorified and stood with Christ, Moses and Elijah, one representing the law, the other representing the prophets. But also the nature 40, verse 3, so we're just going to go back now to talk about this, uh, the, the different symbols and the callbacks. In this case here in Ezekiel, we're going to see a callback to this whole issue of measuring the temple. And he brought me there, verse 3 of chapter 40, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed. So here, in this case, he had a measuring reed and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with your eyes and hear with your ears. So same with John. He has to look and he has to hear and he needs to record what he sees and what he hears. Same case here. Son of man, behold with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you for to the intent that I might show them unto you are you brought here. Same with John to the intent that these things can be shown to John, that's why he is brought into this, this vision. For to the intent that I might show unto you, show them unto you, are you brought here? Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And we must never forget this plot line, 
that God has a controversy with his people. Yes, especially in this end time, the whole earth is involved. All of mankind is involved. God is driving mankind to repentance. And people come to repentance from all nations. And so John, he says, he must prophesy again to all tribes and peoples and nations and tongues. And, and we saw in Revelation 7 that there is repentance from all tribes and peoples and nations and tongues. So all ethnic groups are called to repentance and many repent and become part of this first fruits harvest. But when they repent, they are grafted into Israel because God's covenant is only and exclusively with Israel. And because of all the families of the earth, God only knows Israel, his controversy is with Israel. And so this whole focus is on Jerusalem, the focus is on Israel. And here, this, in, in Ezekiel's case, he was brought to, to see this measurement of who's included, who's not included, so that he could declare everything that he sees to the house of Israel. And that's again why perhaps this uh, word of God is sweet in the mouth, but bitter in the belly, because God has a controversy with his people, and not all of his people are repentant. And behold, a wall on the outside of the house round about and in the man's hand, a measuring reed of six cubits long by the cubit and a handbreadth. So I, we did uh, say earlier what uh, a cubit looks like. <clears throat> and it says here that it's a cubit and a handbreadth. So that, that you know, about 18 inches is uh, the size of a cubit. And, and, and so they would have measuring rods that were specifically designed to be in cubits, and that's what would be used to measure. So he says here, So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed. 43.13 And these are the measures of the altar after the cubits. The cubit is a cubit and a handbreadth. Even the bottom shall be a cubit and the breadth of cubit, and the border thereof by the edge there roundabout shall be a span, and this shall be the higher place of the altar. So there's this very specific callback to the book of um, uh, Ezekiel, to Ezekiel's prophecy, where we see this whole measuring of the temple. Same thing that we see here in uh, Revelation 11. There's also a callback to Zechariah, so when he says that these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth, if we look at Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So the same notion of measuring, who is included, who is excluded. Uh, but here we're going to see specifically this call out to the olive trees. Then said I, where do you go? And he said unto me, to measure Jerusalem. So it's the same uh, theme in the prophecies to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof skipping over to chapter 4 and the angel that talked with me came again and woke me as a man that is wakened out of his sleep and said unto me what do you see and I said I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it and is seven lamps thereon and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side of the bowl. 
So you have these olive trees that are responsible for creating the olive oil and the olive oil then pouring into the bowl and lighting the candles and this whole symbolism of the spirit of God at work. So I answered and spoke to the angel that talked with me saying, what are these? So they're, they're now looking at these um, olive trees and asking, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel that talked with me answered and said unto me, no, don't you know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord, he didn't know. Then he answered and spoke unto me saying, this is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what we see here is this reference that these olive trees are symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God and the working of the Holy Spirit of God. So these two witnesses are symbolized by two olive trees. So these are two prophets that are going to be functioning not by their own might and power, but by the might and power of the Holy Spirit of God. Then answered I and said unto him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, What be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? So the olive trees are emptying this oil and, and, and enabling the candles to shine. And he answered me and said, Don't you know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then said he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So again, we understand from this that these two witnesses are the two anointed ones. And this is also why I lean towards, uh, in this case, these two witnesses, as much as they are symbolic, that these are actual two individuals that are anointed for this purpose. And over here in chapter 5 of Zechariah, Then I turned and lifted up my eyes, and looked, and behold, a flying roll. So we saw again in Revelation this, uh, this scroll that is handed to John. Here in Zechariah, he sees this flying roll, and he wants to know what it is. And he said unto me, What do you see? And I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is twenty cubits, the breadth thereof is ten cubits. Then said he unto me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. So remember, we are in the woes of, of Revelation. So uh, as we looked at the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet, these are also the first, second, and third woe. So these woes are curses. And so again, this bitterness in the belly uh, has to do with the judgment on mankind and the judgment on Israel in, in particular. And he says unto me, this is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth. For everyone that steals shall be cut off, as on this side according to it. And everyone that swears shall be cut off, as on that side according to it. And remember, when John saw the, the little scroll, he said it was written on both sides. And so here we see this flying roll, which is a curse of the earth. And it, it, there's basically the law, is, and judgment is written on both sides. And those who are attached to their filth, attached to their iniquity, attached to their sinfulness, uh, their judgment is sealed. And so this is a, a woe, this is a curse that is coming upon the earth. He says, so uh, everyone that steals shall be cut off, as on this side, according to the role, 
and everyone that swears shall be cut off as on that side, according to the roll. I will bring it forth, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and into the house of him that swears falsely, the liar, by name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it or destroy it with the timber thereof and the stones thereof. This is a time of judgment. And, and this is, I believe, this is the, the bitterness that John saw. Though the word of God is sweet, that the kingdom of God is going to be established is like honey. Uh, but the, 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 the pain and the judgment that's going to come upon the rebels, uh, this is painful. And, and especially those rebels who are the covenant people. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 11, where we saw that if any man tries to hurt these witnesses, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. And I said earlier that, you know, these two witnesses could be anybody. We, we have to be open. We can't be rigid and say, you know, I, I, I know a guy and he's really good with prophecy. I think he's one of the witnesses and maybe he has a son or a brother uh, or a wife. And I think, you know, he, she or the other might, might be one of the two. No, no, no. The witnesses are who they are. And they are the anointed ones and they have a very special purpose. And we will know when we know. Uh, so it could be anybody, but it, you know, it's healthy for us, I think, to speculate, to kind of look into the scriptures, try to understand it. And as I mentioned earlier, the nature of the miracles seems to be a callback to Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets. And here in uh, Luke, when we studied Luke, remember in chapter 9, and behold, there talked with him two men, two witnesses, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. So that's you know one, one data point. In Numbers 16, uh, looking at Moses now, when there was the rebellion from Korah, in Numbers 16, the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, the fam Korah and their families, and their houses, and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their gods. So there was this rebellion within Israel, and the earth swallowed them up, but it didn't just swallow them up. Look at also in verse 35 of number 16. And there came out a fire from the Lord and destroyed the 250 men that offered incense. So we see here part of Moses' ministry, when there was rebellion against him, the Lord sent down fire from heaven, which destroyed them. We also see that with Elijah. So again with Elijah, what we see here, Elijah answered and said unto the captain of 50, so they, were, they, they came to basically arrest him, bring him to the king. If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and destroy you and your fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and destroyed him and his fifty. Again also in Second uh, Kings 1.11, again also he sent unto him another captain of fifty with his fifty. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus has the king said, Come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, If I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and destroy you and your fifty. And the fire of God came down from heaven and destroyed him and his fifty. So there's this question both in the case of Moses and in the case of Elijah. Are you an authentic prophet of God? And there's a challenge to their prophethood. And God answers that challenge personally by sending down fire from heaven. And we see that in the future with these two witnesses, there's gonna be a challenge to their prophethood. And if they truly are men of God, those that are rebelling against them, those that are challenging them, God takes it personally. 
and God will send down fire from heaven and destroy them. So just as he did this with Moses and Elijah, he's going to do this with the two witnesses. And, and there's just, I'm just basically showing the evidence here that very well it's possible that God could resurrect Moses, could resurrect Elijah, and set them as the two witnesses. I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm saying your, you know, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, but here's some evidence that indicates that there's a there's a, an alignment and a continuity of the the uh, miracles that are associated with these men. It goes on in chapter eleven, verse six. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood, and to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. And so what we see here is that. In the case of Moses, we know that he was able to turn water into blood. In Exodus chapter 7, the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Say unto Aaron, Take your rod, and stretch out your hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Uh, verse 20, And Moses and Aaron, Aaron did so as the Lord commanded, and he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh. Again, this is a, Pharaoh is really a symbol of Satan, and this is his empire, and this is the bringing down of this empire. And in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. And so it goes on to talk about the Egyptians. And let's just drop down here to 1 Kings 17. Now, so that was Moses to do with the um, water turning to blood. Now let's look at Elijah. And what we see here with Elijah is the withholding of rain. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. So the power of whether or not water would fall from the sky or water would come up from the grass was held by Elijah's word. And so... This is the same power that these two witnesses have. They have the power of Moses and they have the power of Elijah. And when they shall, continue in chapter 11, and when they shall have finished their testimony, so they are untouchable. Anybody who tries to trouble them, uh, they, they breathe fire. They have the ability to with, withhold the rain from falling uh, on the land and cause famine and drought. And they have the ability to turn water into blood. So people will suffer as a result of rebelling against them and their prophecy. Now the people of God are, are sealed so that they are not subject to these punishments. <clears throat> but when they have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. So these are two very powerful individuals. We know the beast is going to be a very powerful individual. Um, but these are so powerful that he, you know, earlier, you know, uh, there's this worshiping of the beast that he's so powerful and who can make war with him? 
but here he's going to make war against these two witnesses. And that's really a, a testament to their power and, and the efficacy of their ministry. That he is now going to just pull out all the stops and make war against them. And he shall overcome them and kill them. <clears throat> and so the two witnesses here uh, will actually be put to death. And so it says here in verse 8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So I think John is very clear here, and there's a bit of controversy uh, in some of the commentaries about whether or not this is Jerusalem. But I think John is making it very clear that it's the city where our Lord was crucified, and which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. And they of the people and the kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And this is really an indignity. This is, uh, you know, you thought you were so wonderful. We're going to fully humiliate you and allow you just to, to, to lie in the street and not, be, not have the dignity of a burial. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry and shall send gifts one to another because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. So uh, they claim that they're tormented by these people, but they cause this problem upon themselves. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them and they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. So let's look at some of the references and the callbacks. So we know that this is a callback to, uh, actually, this is, let me just skip through this. Yes, here we go. <clears throat> Isaiah says here, in terms of Sodom, uh, you know, it, could Jerusalem be Sodom? Isaiah 1.9, except the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom. And we should have been like unto Gomorrah. This is the wickedness of God's people. We think, you know, oh, they're the chosen people. Somehow they're holy. Uh, the Bible repeatedly, God repeatedly condemns his covenant people as being wicked beyond measure. And so spiritually, they are called Sodom. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. That's how God refers to them, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Continuing in Isaiah, the show of their countenance does witness against them, and they declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil, evil unto themselves. Again, the prophet Jeremiah, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. These are the prophets of Jerusalem. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none returns from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. Again, Ezekiel condemns them. Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom, referring to Israel as Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand and the poor of the needy. So Israel is the same as Sodom. And they committed the whoredoms in Egypt. They committed whoredoms in their youth. 
There were their breasts pressed, and they, there they bruised the teats of their virginity. So there's pure filth and wickedness. Uh, and, and continuing in the, 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 the filth of Sodom and the filth of Egypt. The people of God, neither left she her whoredoms brought from Egypt. It, for in her youth they lay with her, and continuing on about the, her, her filth. Yet she multiplied her whoredoms in calling to remembrance the days of her youth, wherein she had played the harlot in the land of Egypt. So this constant reference that God has throughout the prophets of Israel and Jerusalem being likened unto Sodom and Gomorrah and being likened unto the sin and the, the filth of Egypt. Uh, continuing in Ezekiel, that uh, the whoredom that you brought from the land of Egypt. Back to verse 9 of chapter 11. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three and a half days and they're not going to allow them to be buried. If we look at Psalm 79 verse 2, this is what they do to uh, humiliate the saints of God. The dead bodies of your servants have they given to be meat unto the fowls of the heaven, the flesh of your saints unto the beasts of the earth. So they do not allow for uh, a, a dignified burial of God's people. <clears throat> Their blood, verse 3, have they shed like water round about Jerusalem. And there was none to bury them. So again, just this, the, 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 the symbolism of these two witnesses lying in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days is a symbol of humiliation. That the beast makes war against them. when they, they, He can't do anything to them until they finish their testimony. And their testimony is their, their ministry lasts for three and a half years. And this is really why, brethren, we should have no fear. We should have no fear. The very hairs of our head are numbered. As long as we're useful to God, he's going to put us to use. If we're not useful to God, then there's no reason for us to be alive, really. Uh, so, so really, I want to encourage all of us to do all we can to be useful to God. And then when our ministry's up, our ministry's up. But our, our lives are in God's hands, and he's a faithful God. So he says here that they will rejoice and make merry and send gifts to one another. And so they're rejoicing, and, and, and Christ warned us about this. So it's not just the two witnesses. This is our lot as well. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that you, this is prophecy from the Lord himself, you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and you shall be sorrowful. And so, brethren, it's very important that we are not idolaters, and we are not trying to hold on to this life. And just grab as much happiness and joy and everything we can in this life. That our vision and our commitment is the kingdom of God. And in this process, the world is going to hate us. It's not that it hates us personally. We're just not that important. What it is, is that Satan hates Christ. And Satan is the God of this world. And the people of this world, without the Holy Spirit, are subject to the sway of the devil. You know, this week, I saw in the news that it was International No Pants Day. And so in major cities all around the world, people are going to work with no pants on. I mean, is this madness or what? And if any one of them were to go to work and, and lose their pants... They would feel humiliated. They would be so embarrassed. I hope they would be embarrassed. 
But you know what? Because everybody's doing it, then we'll do it. And this is the nature of human beings under the sway of the devil. And so under the sway of the devil, because the devil hates Christ, he's going to sway these human beings to hate us. Don't take it personally. You and I are not that important. It's that the, the devil hates Christ. And because he hates Christ, and they don't know Christ, and they don't know the Father, they're going to hate us. And as a result, Christ tells us that we shall weep and lament. This is a, 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 the future is not good for Christians. And we're starting to see that all around the world. You just have to Google Christians in Egypt, Christians in Iraq, Christians in Syria, and see what is going on. Because all of that is, is going to be global. It's not just, you know, over there. In fact, the people who are doing it over there are being welcomed over here. So it is going to be a global phenomenon. The world will rejoice and they'll be sending gifts to one another when they kill the two witnesses. And you shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. And their joy is going to be turned into sorrow. So we have to play the long game here. We have to see beyond the here and now and know, we, you know Revelation chapter 4, know that, Je know that Jesus Christ and God, the Father, are sitting securely on their throne. And their will will be done. And we are now in the time of the seventh trumpet. And so it's a time of no more delay. Now we're at this accelerated pace where the kingdom of God is going to be ushered in. So after three days, three and a half days, the spirit of life of spirit of life from God enters into them and they stand on their feet. And this is kind of a callback to Ezekiel 37 when the prophet Ezekiel was told to prophesy unto the wind and to say to the bones, uh, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And this valley of dry bones when the wind, the, the spirit breathed upon these bones, these, uh, this army, great army of Israel stood up upon their feet. And these two witnesses are going to come back to life. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up here. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies beheld them in awe. And the same hour, there was a massive earthquake. So that very same hour, there was a great earthquake and the tenth part of the city fell. And in the earthquake were slain of men, 7,000. So these, these 7,000 men, just a few moments ago, they were sending gifts and they were rejoicing and they were so happy. And then these two witnesses, these two prophets came back to life. They ascended up to heaven. There's a massive earthquake, a tenth part of the city falls and 7,000 men lose their lives in that moment. And again, is it exactly 7,000 or is 7,000 a symbol? We, we, we will know when it happens. And the remnant were terrified. So these people who were aligning themselves with the beast and rejoicing, now they're fearful. And they gave glory to the God of heaven. So finally there's this recognition, who is the true God? The second woe is past, and behold, the third woe comes quickly. So the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet blasts are the first, second, and third woe. So now we're coming into the seventh trumpet blast, which is the third woe. And, and the angel just said with a loud voice, woe, woe, 
woe unto the inhabitants of the earth. And the seventh angel sounded. So now when the seventh angel sounds, we're expecting to hear what is contained in this blowing of the shofar and the, what, the curses that it's going to bring. But instead we get something else. What the ultimate meaning of this seventh trumpet blast is before we get into the, 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 the woe. And there were great voices in heaven. So now this is the, this is the, um, uh, the, the honey, the, the, the sweetness of, of God's word. There were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen to that. So all of these kingdoms through time that are always promising us utopia and bring us nothing but slaughter and oppression. Finally, these satanic kingdoms are going to be brought down and the kingdom of God is going to be established and it's going to be established forever. And all this was prophesied all the way back in the time of Moses when Moses was acting or God was acting through Moses to bring down Pharaoh's empire. And, and, and when he did that, it says here in the Song of Moses, fear and dread shall fall upon them. That's exactly what we're seeing now. By the greatness of your arm, they shall be as still as a stone. They will be terrified. Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over, which you have purchased. You shall bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. This is a prophecy from Moses. And this is exactly what is going to happen. In the place, O Lord, which you have made for you to dwell in, in the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So all from, from the Old Testament right through to Revelation, all these prophecies converge into the book of Revelation. God is true to his word. He shall reign forever and ever. And we see this in Daniel as well. That in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and destroy all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. For as much as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar. What shall come to pass hereafter? The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof sure. So this has been a long time coming, but now in the book of Revelation, it's a time of no more delay. So now these prophecies that were given to Daniel are going to be unfolding very rapidly. And as we see, as we are now entering into the seventh trumpet, it, the declaration of the kingdom of God is made. And, and now all the detail we're going to be going through now from, I believe, from chapter 11 right through to 18, all of the details that are going to be involved in bringing down the satanic empire and establishing the kingdom of God. But, you know, we're going to go into detail, but it's as good as done. And so as the trumpet blast is made, there is this great joy and worshiping of God in heaven. Hallelujah. Declaring the kingdom of God because it is sure. And in Daniel 7, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So, the, the, again, you know, people wonder, you know, are there's one God? There, there are two gods in the God family right now. 
and multiple people are going to be born into this family. That's the whole purpose and mystery of God. And so we have Jesus Christ coming to God the Father. They brought him near before him and there was given to Christ a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Hallelujah. Amen to that. So what, you know, what will we not do for God when we see the love that He has for us and everything that He wants to do for us? We have to get our eyes firmly fixed on the kingdom and not be distracted by pettiness. This is what God wants to give us. He shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. This is reality. This is where everything is heading. Everything else is an illusion and temporary. Back to Revelation 11. And the four and twenty elders, <clears throat> which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and art to come, because you have taken to you your great power and you've reigned <clears throat> and the nations were angry and your wrath is come so there, there's this rebellion it's, it's unbelievable that human beings can be so insane as to rebel against their creator but this is where we are and these nations are going to be in collusion together and they're going to be angry and trying to resist god but your wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should give reward unto your servants, the prophets, and to the saints. So it's not just the prophets, it's, the, it's us saints as well. And them that fear your name, small and great. So, so there's a judgment coming. And this is reality. This is where our focus is. This is where we want to be successful. And you should destroy them which destroy the earth. God loves the earth. And there's a lot of different philosophy and ideology and religion around that basically says that God hates the earth and, and can't wait, has nothing to do with the earth and just wants us just to skirt off to heaven and, and live in the clouds forever and have nothing to do with the earth. God loves the earth and he's going to destroy those who destroy the earth and he's going to give the earth to those who love and obey him. And, and this is a call back to Psalms 2 where David asked the question, why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. You know what? He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And again in Psalms, David writes that the heathen rage and the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. In 115, he will bless them that fear the Lord, both small and great. So Revelation is calling back to what is written in the prophets. We'll just uh, wrap up the second part in here as we wind down. In Revelation 11:15, and the seventh angel sounded, 
And there were great voices in heaven, and we read that now they're rejoicing and saying what's coming, and the four and twenty elders, they worship him, worship God, giving him thanks. And then the nations are angry, and he's going to destroy those that destroy the earth. And then finally, and the temple of the Lord, the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the Ark of His Covenant. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So this goes back to the very promise of the covenant that God has made with His people. And in heaven, in the temple of God, was opened in heaven and there was seen in His temple the Ark of His Testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. So this brings us to the end of Revelation chapter 11. The seventh trumpet, the seventh shofar, has been blown. The kingdom of God has been declared. It is certain. But the seventh trumpet also is the third woe. And we have a rebellious mankind. And so John is now going to take us through some of the detail, a little bit in chapter 12. We're going to deal with some more symbolism. But through 11 to chapter 18, we're going to see in detail what it means that this seventh trumpet has been blown. What a wonderful book. What what a great privilege it is for us to see the future in advance. And Christ wants us to know the future in advance so that as these things unfold, we're not going to be caught off guard. We're not going to be offended. We're not going to betray one another. We're going to be faithful. We're going to be faithful to Lord Jesus Christ, the one true king, the rightful ruler of the earth, our future husband, our king, our God. And he is going to make all things right. He's going to wipe away all tears. And he's going to establish this kingdom forever. But mankind is rebellious. And so as we continue in the book, we're going to see this rebellion finally quashed. So looking forward to continuing this uh, next week as we go into Revelation chapter 12 and looking forward to joining you on the chat. And also, if you have any questions regarding the opening where uh, Pastor Murray was talking about uh, one of the questions that came from Revelation chapter 9 regarding those uh, four four angels released from the, the river Euphrates. So thanks very much for joining us. Jesus Christ is great. He's our God. He's our King. May his name be praised forever.